0: Good morning. Good morning. Here we go. He He is risen. Okay. So, interestingly, we use this word he is risen and that's the way that we state it. But the scripture says he has risen. In in both gospels, when the women go to the tomb, the angels there, he says, "He is not here. He has risen." So this call and response that we use on Easter, he is risen, and then he is risen indeed, is a a declaration. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the affirmation of what's happened and what's changed. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. He stayed in the grave for three days. Then he was resurrected to new life. And he came out holding the keys to death and the victory over Satan. And so we say that he is risen, but the reason why we say he is risen is because he has risen. So the declaration there is important. It is, he is risen, and the emphasis is on is, and this small distinction in the grammar makes all the difference in the world. In fact, it's so, uh, it's so important, this kind of distinction, that Jesus himself used it to make the argument for the resurrection of the dead. In Luke chapter 20, when he's debating the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, They didn't believe there was a resurrection from the dead, and they had sort of laid this logic trap using scripture about if a man had a wife, and he died, and then she married his brother, and then he died, and so on and so forth. Then they said, if they were all resurrected, then whose wife would she be? Jesus laughed and said, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God, which is sort of a bless your heart kind of statement in that day, right? You can say whatever you want as long as you end it with bless your heart. That was kind of a bless your heart, you don't know what you're talking about. In Luke chapter 20, in verse 35, he says this, But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. And then he says this, But the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's making a point here, and he's going to round it out by this. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And if you missed it there, it's the emphasis of the present tense that God is the God of Abraham, and the God is the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he's making a point here that God is not the God of those who are dead, but those who are living. So the living God is the God of the living. And he makes that point saying that it's a present tense. They're all alive to him. And all in that verse is referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're going to do one thing this morning. Ready? I have one aim, and it's to teach you the meaning of life. Right? That sounds like a bit too much to bite off on Easter morning. But we have a couple hours, and I think we can do it. So uh, if you have your Bible this morning, grab it. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16, and uh, I want to walk through uh, a text this morning that uh, will be somewhat familiar to you. It's not interesting, the resurrection text that you would have expected today, but I think it helped because the resurrection makes this text make sense, okay? So we're going to talk about the meaning of life this morning, and so when we're talking about the meaning of life and the different distinctions that we have, um, in the Greek, there's three words that are translated life in our Bible, right? So there are um, three different nuances to what kind of life is being referred to when we think of life. And when we read it in the scriptures, we think about eternal life or your life here on earth or um, your, your life or what it's composed of. So bios is the one that we get our word for biology, right? Bios just means literal physical life, everything that is living on earth and has movement and, and breath and is an organic uh, organism is considered b- part of the bios. But then there's zoe, which is the, 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 the aspect of being alive. And this is the only one of the words of life that also can be used, as, that has a verb attached to it. So you can be living, right? And when Jesus talks about eternal life, this is the word that he uses, zoe. And uh, then the last one is suke which occasionally is is translated life, but it also means something like the soul. And so because these are nuanced, and, and when I put them in those terms, you get a little better understanding of maybe what they refer to, but that's really not a clear enough distinction for us to make sense of some of the other statements that Jesus makes. Like when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, does he mean the life here on earth, like physical life, or does he mean the eternal life afterward, or does he mean like I am the soul that you could have, that perpetuates? And so we need to sort of work through that to understand what kind of distinctions are being made. And is it the same kind of life that he says, when whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it? And I think we're all thinking, I'd like to keep my life. So am I supposed to want to save it and so that I don't lose it? Or if I want to save it, do I lose it anyway? And so I think there's some importance to teasing this out. Because everybody wants life, or more life, or longer life, or better life. And so all of our living, which would be that Zoe, all of our living seems to be pointed towards and focused on how we can either improve our lives, prolong our lives, insulate our lives, And so we we sort of totally focus on this one aspect to to, uh, perpetuate our living. And Jesus means to teach us something because he tells us that death is actually the only way to life, which is a profound reversal of how we generally think about things. So the question this morning is, do we have the same definition of life, and do we really understand how we find that life? Well, let's pray, and then we'll walk through the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would teach us in your word what life is and how we may find it. That we thank you that you have done all that needs to be done, that we can find life, that we can have life. So God, in the next moments, we need your spirit to help us, to teach us by your word that it would form us and give us life. Breathe into us, Your very words, by your spirit, that it would form and shape us to grow in you in the likeness of your son. We ask that you would help us in this because we cannot do it on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So he is risen. risen We can say that because he has risen. And so I want to talk about this reversal that happens at this Point. Suppose you got up this morning and uh, you looked at your phone, and there's a text. that's from an unknown number, but the, the the caller ID already has it in there. It's from Jesus. Wow, right? He's already got your number. Okay. He sends you a text, and it says, "I'm coming back." Right? And that's a loaded statement. You think that's important, but he also then sends a text a little bit later and says, "But don't tell anyone." Okay. So I need you to think about what you would think if for some way you knew that was verified, Jesus actually sent you this text, okay? And he said, I'm coming back. And then it, I don't care what your perspective about what the end looks like, it would be a loaded statement. You would have expectations of what's going to follow because he's coming back. Like you'd be expecting some things to happen and what that was all going to look like, right? But then he adds on it, don't tell anyone. Yeah, and you're like, man, this is so huge. How, how can I not tell everyone? Well, there's a reason why he would say, don't tell anyone yet, because you're not informed enough to tell other people about what that actually is going to look like, okay? Now, he's not going to send you a text, but in the text that we're going to read this morning, two different texts, by the way, right? Cell phone text. In the text we're reading this morning, that same kind of dynamic plays out. Because in Matthew chapter 16, this same little section of Jesus' life where um, he's correctly identified by his followers as the Messiah. He shortly follows that with what he's going to do as his mission, which is to die and then come back to life in three days. And he follows that with don't tell anyone. So there's this sort of weird dynamic where he he, kind of quiets them down from the truth. And so let's look in Matthew chapter 16. And really the prime part of the text that we'll talk about is starting in verse 13. But I'm going to just sort of recap for you what's happening uh, at this moment. So this is taking place in a region called Caesarea Philippi, which is important because there is a shrine to various gods. And this is the head of the river Jordan and one of the main tributaries to it. And so there's a lot of false worship and uh, going along. And so Jesus asks his disciples, "Who who do people say that I am? He's not asking because he's not sure what people say about him. He's asking because he wants to know what they think about who he is. And so they first give him like the news of the day, right? Well, some people say you're Elijah, or some people say you're a prophet. And then Peter pipes up, as we know, and he says, you are Jesus the Christ, right? And then he's affirmed in that. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And he kind of changes Peter's name, use a little metaphor there to call Peter a rock. And so Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And then in verse 20, Jesus does that curious thing where he says, but don't tell anyone about this, right? You, you, you've hit the nail on the head, that's right. Now, in the minds of the disciples at this moment, when Jesus affirms, yes, you're right about me being the Messiah, that's the same thing as Jesus texting you and saying, I'm coming back. It's a loaded statement, right? You're, you're expecting a lot of things to come with that. And so the disciples are expecting now the kingdom come, the overthrow of the Roman government. Everything will be as they were hoping always that there will be a new... Uh, ruler on the throne of David, and there'll be a glorious ruling of Israel as the powerful nation throughout the world. So it's a loaded statement, but he says, don't tell anyone. And then verse 21 through 23, Jesus tells them that he's going to die. And then he says, but I will be resurrected. So he kind of gives them the whole story, but he doesn't tell them how it's going to happen. He just says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over. I'll be betrayed. I'll be killed, but I will come back in three days. And then right after this, Peter takes Jesus aside. He goes, Jesus, let me tell you about how this is going to go. And he rebukes Jesus, and he tells him, there's no way that you're going to die. You're the Messiah. That can't happen. And then, of course, if you know the story, Jesus rebukes Peter. And he told him, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. And then he says, for you're not thinking of the things of God. So then we're going to pick it up. Then in verse 24. Okay? It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And, and in this text, there's there's three words, and they all say the same thing, but it's translated two different ways, right? If anyone would come after me, that's the word follow me or come after, or disciple, and then he says He's speaking to the disciples, which would be the same thing, those are be his followers. And he said, to, to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so he kind of gives some qualifications about following him. So we need to understand that being a disciple equals following, right? That's, that's the part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. Disciple, come after me, follow me. So what he's done here is he's putting in place the things that need to be in place. He says, find your place. Peter went from, Peter, you're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail right, against it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. All that good, good, good. He went from rock to a stumbling block. He says, Peter, you're being a stumbling block. So what, what changed in that dynamic? Well, the problem is that Peter got ahead of Jesus. And what what he says to him literally is, Get behind me, Satan. Not because you'd rather have Satan in your back doing things so you can't see him, but because Peter had gotten ahead of him. And that's what he tells him. You were not thinking with the mind of God, you're thinking with the ways of man. And so Jesus properly repositions Peter where a disciple belongs behind the master, behind the master, learning from the master. You're not a leader of Christ, you're not an equal to Christ. You do not come along Jesus. Come along with Jesus and try to counsel him on the way that things ought to go. And that's Peter's mistake. So Jesus uses this moment not only to reposition Peter, but then he's going to qualify for everyone what it means then to be a disciple or a follower. And he gives two descriptions or two qualifications for those who are going to follow him. Right. So if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself. That's the first qualification he gives deny himself. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means denial. This is the same word for denial that you would expect when Peter had denied Jesus three times. He said, I absolutely do not know that man, that kind of denial. You must deny yourself is what Jesus says though. If you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. And so the question here is, what is self? Which is not to be confused now with self-denial. Those are actually two different statements, right? Self- denial is. Um, using self as sort of the adverb to modify what the denial is. Like Self-denial is like saying, I'm not gonna have some of the things I'd rather have. I, I, I'm on a diet, you know, I shouldn't eat four donuts, I only have two. That's, that's self-denial. But denial of self is, is something totally different. Self is the subject. It is the noun. It is receiving the force of the denial. This means it's the denial of your very own being. Like, if I asked you who you are and you begin to describe what it is that makes up your life with some qualification of like maybe where you came from and who your parents are and what you do, all of those things, that is your self. But it's also the sense of your knowing that you're alive, like your, your internal um, dialogue and, and all that makes you you. That's the self that Jesus means. So this means a, de- dem- a denial excuse me, of your very own being, everything that makes you you. That's just the first qualification though, because then he goes on and he says he must take up your cross which is a shocking statement. Jesus makes this statement about bearing his cross, obviously, before he's crucified. He makes it well before that, and so it's got a whole host of ideas already buried into it that gets lost on our modern ears and on our minds because of our perspective. It's essentially this, a gross picture of total subjection. It's crushing of personal identity. It's absolute autonomy removed and total subjugation. Not to mention that it's an utterly brutal death sentence, right? So on top of the fact that it means you're going to die, it means all of these other things before that, because the Romans use it to absolutely enforce their rule for anyone that got out of line or broke laws or were insurrectionists, right? And so there was lots of reasons why you might be crucified. So when he says to take up your cross, it means all of these things that we tend to miss. And we've lessened this idea to something more like a proverbial statement, meaning this is a difficult thing to do right? It's, a, it's sort of a, a passing difficulty. And no one would have ever dare say in this moment, it was a medium-hard crucifixion. Like, it was touch and go for a minute. I wasn't sure I was going to make it, right? Because make it never makes it into the chat because it's a death sentence. It's a foregone conclusion. The inevitable outcome of this is death. Taking up your cross is not a trial, It's certain death. Jesus is not asking us to buck up in temporary circumstances. He's pointing towards a a permanent idea. The imminent and undeniable outcome of the events of taking up a cross is that it ends in a crucifixion, which ends in death. And so this is what he asked for his followers. Anyone who comes after me must deny his very self. Everything that makes you you and everything that you pursue and everything that you hold dear must go away. And also take up your cross because that means total subjection and total uh, removal of identity. And you're going to die. And so we tend to go, okay, so what's the metaphor here? What's Jesus really saying though, right? We turn this into an allegory. And Jesus doesn't say you need to identify with my cross. He says, take up your cross. Well, who should do that? Well, anyone that would come after me. So these two qualifications are non-negotiable. It's not something that you can choose to do or not do. So the way of following Christ entails denial of self and the ensuing death of that same self. And the only way that we can have life is to have the same death, the very same kind of death. So what does that mean? Like, how are we supposed to have the same kind of death as Jesus did? Well, we read it in the music portion of the service. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, it says, "For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is an interesting statement, if you think about it. Like, how can you have a death like Jesus, but still be alive? That's a, that's a pertinent question, because it's something that he's required of us. If you're going to come after me, you have to be crucified. Well, so, I mean, like, we literally have to crucify ourselves. Obviously, we know that's not true because there's been a long history of people not being crucified and yet being followers of Christ. So we're called to pick up a cross, follow Jesus into a like kind of death. And what kind of death is that? And the question is answered with the kind of death where sin meets its justice. The kind of death where sin meets justice. If you take everything else away around the crucifixion, the fact that Jesus is a prophet, the fact that Jesus seems to have a very good life, that he's a good man. Like if you take all of that away and just said, he's just a guy that died on a cross, a good man, and he died at the hands of man. He died a physical death. And you, and you kind of just put that out there. That, that doesn't stand out. There's no real big aha moment in that. There were thousands and thousands of people who died on the cross, many of them probably innocent of the crimes that they were accused of. So Jesus did not just die a physical death as a good man at the hands of men. Christ alone went to the cross as you, as a sinner, as sin, and he bore that sin in himself to death for you to be alive in him. That's a, that's a whole bunch of steps there. So let me say that again. It's Christ alone who went to the cross as you, as sin, for sin, to death, so that you can be alive in him. Second Corinthians 5.21 it says, for our sake, for, for your own good, for our sake, he made him sin. That's That him there is Christ. He made him sin who, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And and these are being statements. He made him to be sin. He, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become. That's another being statement. Christ died not just as sin, but also as a curse for us. We are set free from the curse because Christ is the one who died cursed in our place. Galatians 3:13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might, be, might, be, might come even to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So the same spirit that gives life, that gave Christ life, is the same spirit that gives us new life. So here's what Jesus essentially is trying to point us towards. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to follow him in a death like his, because that self that's crucified and denied is the sinning self that must die in the like death of Christ. It's the greatest identity swap that's ever been done. That Christ went as you, and that's the death that you must die. He took you and was you on the cross. Here's what 2 Timothy 2.11 says about this. This saying is trustworthy. It is true. You you can bank on this. This is a doxology of the early church. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay. So... That, 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 that last bit there is uh, denying him, and he'd have to deny us. So to have a life like him, we must have a death like him. And to live with him, we must have died with him. And so Jesus moves us from this idea about what does it mean to die and to follow him to something more important about the costs of following him. And so that comes in verse 25 of our text. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it, and this is where we really need to understand what does life mean in this verse, because if it said something like "whoever loses his bios," that would be just your your living, right? Or whoever loses his uh, his zoē, that would mean something like spiritual death, or even our our our, our making a living. That's the same idea in zoē, but he uses the word suke here, and we we find that that means soul and. It's sort of unfortunate that it's translated life here, but hear now what Jesus says, if you just replace life with soul, for whoever would save his soul will lose it. But whoever loses his soul for my sake will find it. So he wants to talk about the costs and and what it is that we're trying to do when we seek our life. And so Jesus' offer is not, whoever wants to have eternal life should do these steps. That's that's not the presentation here. Here's how to earn it, he doesn't say that. He said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, that is to follow me, he will have eternal life because by following him, we get him. Consider that Jesus is not trying to appeal to your ability to calculate correctly a long-term return on investment. He doesn't say what you get in the end is better than what you'll have now. That's That's not the correction he's making here. He doesn't say if you do X, here's the cost, but look what you'll gain. What Jesus is actually saying is the exact opposite. If you think that you'll gain enough to get the goal that you believe you're after, you're wrong. The profound point here that we miss is Jesus is not unclear about the requirements of following him. It's that we're tragically unclear about what we actually have in our possession. We're unclear about our valuations of the world. Our lack of perception and imposing our values onto what Jesus is saying causes us to miss this. We think, if I, if I hold on to the stuff of life, that's what Jesus is really talking about. That's not what he said. He, he means something m- more profound and more deep than that. First and foremost, the prize, the object of what Jesus is holding out is not eternal life. It's himself. He doesn't say, if you want eternal life. He says, if you would follow me. Right? He, he is the object of what we're after. And so his disciples must see that first and foremost. But the important, uh, the important inherent truth of that is that by following him, we gain him. And we gain him, then we gain life. Because I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So by having Christ, we have life. Whoever has the Son has life. John says it that way. So Jesus is clear about the question. But the question for us then is, do you really understand about the valuations of what's in the world and what life really is. I don't know when Beanie Babies came out, but everybody lost their mind for a good decade. And they were giving them out at McDonald's and you could buy them in the stores and there was vending machines and they cost like a dollar, you know? Maybe that, maybe a little more if they were like a nice one or something. So apparently this is the most expensive Beanie Baby. It uh, is valued at $500,000. This is the Princess Diana, Beanie Baby, originally retailed for $4.95. So here we have this idea of, of something that we think is very valuable. So suppose during the Beanie Baby craze, you had invested good sums of money in something that you thought was going to pay off later, right? Maybe, maybe if I had gone a little further back, you'd think of some collectible baseball cards or sports cards, something like that, right? Where, where you can invest in something and you think that you actually hold a lot of value because you have this thing. But if you actually ask, what is the actual value of this little bit of fabric and some stuffing, it's cents on the dollar. And it's not even about the retail price of it. There's something more to the valuation that we think that we're making a true calculation. And Jesus is desperately trying to tell you you've missed the point. That's not a true calculation. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? He's he's telling you in a different way that what is the price of a soul? How how could you buy it? If you could collect everything in the world, would that be enough to purchase a soul? There's nothing that can buy a soul. That's the rhetorical answer. So when he says, "What, what good is it? What profit is it? How could you do it? If you had everything in the world, would that be enough then to purchase your soul? And he says, no, that's, that's the rhetorical answer. There is nothing that you can do to get it. So how much does it cost then to add an hour to your life? And, and even if you had enough to do it, could you do it? Let alone, could you extend your life by any meaningful amount of time, right? There's, there's no amount of goods that can purchase something. And so Jesus is not talking about the goods of life. What Jesus is inviting then is total surrender to the reality that you're living and gaining life is really not gaining anything. It's really death. The, the, the object that you're straining for and trying to prolong is pursuit of death. And Jesus is trying to get you to say that. Even if you got it all, would it change a thing? And you'd have to say, no, I'd still die. I'd, I'd still be in the same condition. Maybe I went a little more comfortably. So your pursuit of all the something of life is really nothing. You need what you do not have, and you must purchase what you cannot buy. And Christ is trying to tell you there's only one way to do that. Jim Elliot, who was a a missionary, who was actually killed on the mission field, is famous for a quote where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the essence of what Jesus wants us to understand. The crazy inversion about life. The crazy inversion about the valuation is that the only way to gain everything is to lose a nothing. Right? He says, even if you collected everything, could you purchase what really matters? And you'd have to say no. And that's what Jesus wants you to give up. The thing that you think is worth everything, which is actually nothing, nothing is what you must lose. You must give up all of the nothing that you believe to really be something to have something. You have to give up all of the nothing that you believe to be something to have something. It's the only way to gain is to lose. If we think that we can follow Jesus to retain ourselves, then we haven't really come to follow Jesus. He gave the two requirements, deny yourself and take up your cross. If you're not ready to lose yourself and be a nobody, then you're not ready to follow Jesus. You're not a follower of Jesus. Jesus is no help to you if you need to be a somebody. He deals exclusively in nobodies. Exclusively. If you go to Jesus looking for life, he offers life. But he offers it when you lose yourself. Because when you lose yourself and you have nothing to bring, that's when he can give you a new self. Jesus only fills empty things. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, I now live in the flesh. I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. In Jesus, we have new life because the old life has died. It died when Jesus crucified it on the cross. And that's your cross that you identified in. That's me on the cross. And if you think Jesus means to preserve your life or provide a better living for you, you've essentially followed him to the cross and decided you are more worthy of life than he was. Which is the greatest of tragedies. I've come to you, Jesus, to find myself. No, you, you come to Jesus to lose yourself and find him. If you come to the cross to make more of you, it's a, it's a silly spectacle. Your name, your identity, your pursuits, your goals, none of these are more worthy than Christ himself. So when we've been crucified with Christ, we no longer are living that self life. I don't live that. I, I live, it's Christ in me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is famous for a lot of things. He pastored and was a theologian during. The time of the Nazis. And he wrote a book on discipleship called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he says this The only man who has the right to say that he's justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. What does he mean by that? Because if you think that you've brought something to God to justify his acceptance of you, and you, you, you've tried to merit what it is that he's trying to hand you for your nothing. But it's your everything, but it's nothing. And do you, you see the flip of the switch. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. He says, follow after me. I In me is life, but you come and die. And there's no more you, it's me. And in the rest of this text, this is, we learn why this is true. The meaning of life is found in our death. The meaning of our life is found in his life, but it's only found in the way of death, through the way of death. The resurrected Jesus is the proof of Jesus' identity. It's the proof that he was the Christ. It is the proof of the work that he had done, and it's the proof of what he offers us. Every life ends in death. Jesus is the only death that ends in life. This is is the only time where where life is totally flipped on its head. Our perspective about the meaning of life and how we get it and how we prolong it and what we can have it for is changed when Jesus actually is crucified. He takes it and he shows "This this is why I had to go and die so that I could pay as you that I could be the curse, that I could be the sin. And that's why if Peter had run with the moment where he thought, this is the Messiah, everything I always wanted, and that's why he says, wait, there's there's more to do so that we can embrace this truth that through the way of death, there is life. Hear this this morning. statement of Jesus. Whoever wants to find his life will lose it. You must take up your cross, deny yourself. It's made in three of the Gospels, but only Luke records this little extra in there. You must take up your cross daily and follow me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing because though you live as Christ in you, you still are walking around with the remnants of the old you. So he asks us to to carry our cross daily. In 2 Corinthians verse four, or chapter four verse ten says, "We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body." Or Philippians three ten. I want you to know that Christ and power of His re- resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to Him in the image of His death. Or Colossians two verse twelve. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. If you could think about it like this, Jesus asked us to carry a cross, not just once to die, but every day. Why would he do that? You know, one of the things that we we don't talk about is this, this sign they stuck above Jesus when they nailed him to the cross. It said, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, There's a title on that. If you can think about it like this, he's asking us to carry around our own tombstone that reminds us that we died. Your tombstone. Here lies the old you. And you pick that up every day. Because you died. And you carry that. And that's what makes you invincible. That that life that you're living is not yours. It's Christ's. The memorial to your own death means that you actually possess what he's given you. I've already died. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And our price of purchase, our ransom, is not measured by our measurement of how much we think it ought to take to cover our sin. I I bet it's about this many ounces of blood. (laughs) If you need to see the ugliness of your sin, we look to the cross. There's, that's the price of the ransom. This whole process is laid out in Romans 6. I want to read you this full text in light of what we've heard this morning. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus wants to know, how, how could I be born again? Jesus says, you must be born with water and of the Spirit. You have to be born from above. That, that baptism into Christ is into his death. So we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That new life that you walk in is yours because you died in baptism and here you are living as Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So death no longer has dominion over him. That's the invincible part. As you're carrying Christ's death with you and your death, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The invitation this morning is what Jesus offers, what he holds out to you. If you want to follow me, deny yourself and pick up your tombstone because the old you has died. And if you want to walk in newness of life, you want to follow me, you'll have life.